You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview the South Carolina Aquarium's Director of Conservation, Albert George. And we talk about everything from climate mitigation and adaptation strategies in the low country of South Carolina, the Resiliency Initiative for Coastal Education, the Gullah Geechee people and Southern culture, and how one person can make a difference. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. Emerger Strategies has also recently founded the Fly Fishing Climate Alliance, whose members have pledged to go carbon neutral by 2030. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. Well, Albert, I think that the the last time that I saw you, we were at the the Low Country Land Trust event, and that was the first time we actually met. Um, yeah. Back in was that maybe January? Yeah, yeah. It seemed like it seemed like a long time ago, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like that was about ten years ago. Yeah, exactly. Oh. I, I I feel like we've known each other for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, and and well, what the what was what was cool about that was um, getting to to know a little bit more about you, but also um, it's always cool to meet someone who is also um, from the Low Country and loves the Low Country and yeah. and and makes this uh, conservation and, and and climate connection. So um, I'm. I'm really excited about today and um, for, for you taking the, the time to do an interview. So I appreciate it. No, Rick, Rick, the, the feeling is mutual. And, um, you know, we, we love where we live and um, we live in a great place. So why not celebrate it? But all at the same time, how do we, you know, think about how to mitigate risk, you know, so, you know, to keep it around. So I'm, I'm excited to talk with you. Cool. Well, um, well, Albert, for, for the folks out there that, don't know you. Um, you are the director of of conservation at the South Carolina Aquarium. Um, that's your current role, but you've been doing climate work and sustainability and conservation work for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so I thought I would let you uh, let you run with that and, and, and give us your your, your background and 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 tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. Well. You know, I, I joke about being really Gullah Geechee for real. You know, uh, you know, <laughs> as you know, the, the line of demarcation for most people, the Savannah River. Yeah. And um, you know, and I joke about you know my mom, whom I love and adore. Um, you know, my mom's side of the family is from South Carolina, um, and you know, had the pleasure of having deep family roots here. But when my mom passed away when I was young, my grandmother raised me in Savannah. So I said, I've I've lived on both sides of the Savannah River, now back north of the Savannah River, and I've lived to tell the story. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so the first thing first, as you mentioned earlier, I am a real homie. You know, I am uh, from the Low Country, and I've had the honor of living, you know, in different parts of the Low Country throughout my sort of up upbringing. In terms of my background, um, you know, I joke about the fact that I'm a car carrier marine biologist. Um, you know, I my career, you know, started um, in marine biology when I started studying marine biology at Savannah State University. And pretty much from there, you know, from the mid 1990s, you know, I've been working in the mud or I've been working in a lab, um, you know, through the years. But then right around, I would say, 2000 and 2000, 2001 became really um, engaged around the topic of climate change and potential implications for our region. And from that time up until now, I've been working in various capacities to do First, I was involved with what we call mitigation, which is, you know, looking at how do we reduce the amount of greenhouse gases getting into the atmosphere. Now, just given the current state of affairs with that mitigation that goes sort of swiftly as we would like for most of us who've been in the game for a while, now we're at a point where we have to sort of think about adaptation, not sort of putting mitigation aside, but but because of we're locked into some pretty dynamic changes of roughly at least six feet of sea level rise potentially over the next 85 years. I think we have to put, you know, adaptation at the top of the list as well right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that, that's so, so a couple of things we, we talked about this um, just for, for, for the folks out there listening to I'm from Savannah. So, so Albert and I are, 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 are have that in common. And now I'm, I'm, I'm in, uh, in his neck of the woods up in Charleston. So, um, but I, I, I did, um, I do basically with, with, with my business, Albert, the, I, I, I focus a lot on the, on the mitigation side of things mm-hmm. um, in terms of reduction strategies and um, how can we get to carbon neutral and, um, and zero waste and, and things such as that. But the, the adaptation side is, is really interesting. And, and that has a lot also to do, I think, with, with resiliency, right? Correct. Correct. And and the thing I would say, and, I, and Rick, I want to make this point expressly, we, 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 at the end of the day, we have to solve the equation of mitigation, right? I mean, for us to really um, bring things back to the levels of having things stabilized over the longer term, and I'm speaking the geologic term at this point, right? right. Um, that you, we have to figure out how we're going to live in balance and reduce the amount of anthropogenic greenhouse gases, right? And, and you know, what I told people, so, so what I just want to emphasize is that by no means am I saying that, that we need to lose focus on that. Um, the only thing that I think that I've been just pragmatic and just a realist about, just given where we locked into right now, um, and as you know, we see those effects right now here in Charleston that we have seen a dramatic increase of what we call sunny day flooding events that went from roughly about two-ish sort of events in the 1970s to now, you know, we have broken records, you know, three years in a row where, you know, last year we were over 50 days of flooding without rain. And so when you start looking at that type of data um, and, you and you know, then when you look at the latest NOAA data that states that, you know, if, if things persist along this current, you know, glad trajectory that here in a place like Charleston, that by 2045, you can have 180 days of flooding without rain. And so, you know, again, you know, I want to emphasize mitigation. We have to stay focused on that. But unfortunately, because of just the reality 
realities that I laid out in sort of uh, broad strokes, we have to be focused on um, adaptation. And as you mentioned, a big part of adaptation is, is a focus on resiliency and how in the face of these changes, we can make the needed sort of um, strategic uh, moves or sort of the strategic um, priorities to mitigate these risks where we don't see as much dramatic or the, the, the impact is not as dramatic as it could be, as I put it in those terms. Yeah, and and so can can you um, dive in a little bit deeper? Like, what what are some adaptation, um, I guess, strategies or or, or 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 things like that 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 can help us, um, I guess, to to be able to be resilient to, to to climate change here in Charleston? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things you know, I believe in starting home first. You know, like literally, let's start where we live and. One of the things we bless with Rick in this part of the world is what we call green infrastructure. You know, we're blessed with the salt marshes. We're blessed with the maritime live oak forest. We're blessed even with the, you know, with the, the fresh water um, interplays between the brackish water, fresh water. Um, the low country is, a, is abounding in what we call green infrastructure. But as you know, and I know that there is downward pressure on that infrastructure. And the sad thing about it is, is that, you know, what I tell people, for us, if we could just protect, protect what sort of what we have, you know, if we do a better job at protecting the salt marsh, a better job at protecting the salt marsh, uh, the, the maritime live oak forest, the, the, the greenways that we possess, that that would actually, you know, bode well for us being resilient over the longer term. Um, so that's the first thing, you know, I just wanted to put that out there as first. The second thing I would say that that it may sound simple, but it's to the point is the lack of awareness around these issues. You know, I think that unfortunately, um, for whatever reason, you know, there's still a, a big power curve of of a big gap between the people who are in the know and, and not in the know that this yeah. that these changes are occurring. And so a big push of what we've been trying to do, um, you know, through the resilience initiative for coastal education, which spells rice. Um, a big part of our push has been how do we just make people aware that, you know, that water that kind of been getting in your backyard um, that you didn't used to see is part of a bigger phenomenon that you need to be aware of. So I would say the second part of it is, you know, is definitely just raising that awareness. And then I think the third part, even though I kind of alluded to it, you know, when I first started mentioning about protecting sort of the great rich resources that we have, the third part is basically us being mindful that, you know, the type of land zoning and building codes and all of those things that we sort of don't necessarily, you know, all, all the time marry up with sort of green infrastructure protecting sort of the greenways, we have to do that. You know, it's not like a good thing to do anymore. Just where we are, just in this sort of, um, this sort of current time in history and the escalation principles we can't just sort of haphazardly do, do, you know, develop a land use, a zoning, or other related practices that's not in alignment with sort of greening, uh, you know, protecting our sustainable resources. Yeah. So, so a, a few things that I'll I'll, I'll circle back around on um, for for green infrastructure, like if just to, to make sure that I'm that I'm also clear on it, what what you're talking about essentially is the natural ecosystem services that say our marshes provide and like absorbing carbon, for example, or, 
our, our maritime forest, I'm sure they do the same thing, right? They're all absorbing carbon. So by not developing them and keeping them intact, we are, that, that in and of itself is, is, is helping to solve climate change. You, you better believe it. I mean, because you think about it like this and you think about green infrastructure. So, so definitely carbon sequestration. Um, I've seen data, Rick, where, um, you know, sort of estuarine habitats in some instances has a higher ratio of carbon sequestration than forest, right? In terms of when you think about their ability to, uh, when you think about uh, aggregation within their soil or pluff mud, in addition to the vegetation. So that definitely spot on there. But what I would also add, in addition to the carbon sequestration, is the natural uh, flood mitigation that these uh, ecosystems form, right? In terms of being able to uh, have some place where the excess water runoff could could go to. And and so let's use a specific example. When I think about Joaquin that occurred about, you know, a little over five years ago, that basically when you think about, you know, we had like 26 inches of rain in Mount Pleasant over 24 hours, 24 inches in Charleston. I think Columbia really only had about maybe like 16 inches, but you kind of remember Columbia was flooded to, to Hades and back, right? And and you think about what was the what's the difference between Columbia versus Charleston versus Mount Pleasant? The biggest difference is is what green infrastructure, right? I mean, the the, the water had some place to go, and we had um, able it was able to you know balance out against all of the impervious uh, substrate that comes along with cities. So I would put in uh, flood risk mitigation, and then not even to mention, um, you know, that, you know, when you think about the salt marshes and maritime live oak forests, you're talking about one of the most productive ecosystems in the world in terms of, nat- in terms of nature ways and, and serving as the, the nursery of, of, the, of the fisheries of the, of the Atlantic Ocean and things of that nature. So, so correct on all of those fronts. Um, yeah, no, that, that, that's a, that's a interesting point that I, 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 was I, I got my mind wrapped around carbon sequestration and I didn't even think about the 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 value that it brings just from from flood mitigation and um, also I, I guess with hurricanes you know things like our our barrier islands protecting us and, and oysters and um, help, helping to reduce that energy before it actually hits the, the coast where more people live. Yeah, it's it's invaluable, and and we have been beneficiaries of that of those ecosystem services, and you know, and I almost look at them as like God and angels. They're kind of doing this great job that no one kind of knows about or fully appreciates, but they literally are providing life saving, um, life saving and that life saving and life nurturing services on so many different levels. Um, for us not to be thinking about how we can protect them and, and cultivate. Um, their sort of viability over the longer term is, is unthinkable to be honest with you. Yeah. So, so Albert, tell, tell, tell me more about, um, RICE rice. What, what's, what's that initiative all, all about? Yeah. Well, you know, when I, I took on this role, um, actually June 1st of this year was my five year anniversary at the South Carolina aquarium. Uh, I have the honor of serving as the first director of conservation and so when I took on this role, I wanted to really think about what could be um, an umbrella initiative that could really speak to where we are as the low country, um, what could, you know, where we need to go as the low country. And, you know, one day when I was actually walking on the Gaston's Wharf, 
was this idea that it came to me. I said, what is the one thing that low country is known for? So when I started thinking about it, number one, we're known for being the, the corridor for the salt marshes, right? When you think about from Georgetown to Savannah, you know, that's, you think about salt marsh. But then the other thing that comes to my mind is from Georgetown to Savannah, that's the old rice kingdom, right? That's yeah. the that's the place between Georgetown and Savannah, Georgia. And of course it went down further south, but I'm talking about the epicenter of the rice kingdom was to me from Georgetown to Savannah. And when you think about that, you know, what what is at the heart of rice production? Large scale waterland engineering, right? That when you think about um, sort of what is at the heart of rice production is large scale waterland engineering. But then when you think about what is at the crux of resiliency, right, as it relates to us in the low country and it's large scale waterland engineering, right? <laughs> and so one of the key things that the Resilience Initiative for Coastal Education, which spells rice, is that it's a purposeful homage to our past. And, and what I'm just trying to tell people or what I'm just trying to remind people of, Rick, is that we have over 300 years of history of doing large scale waterland engineering in this part of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And the key thing that I was excited about with the Rice Initiative is that how do we, um, you know, pay homage to our history, but also recognize the fact that we have within our historical frame of reference the type of skill set we need to mitigate the current dynamics or the current risk coming our way with the rise of sea levels, right? And so the the whole intent of the Resilience Initiative Coast Education is to remind us of our past in, in the great history in this region around large-scale waterland engineering, but also is to challenge us to say that just because we're challenged with this this sort of um, potential threat that we have within our DNA, the makings to to leverage our sort of knowledge of large-scale waterland engineering to mitigate these risks that comes along with the climate change and sea level rise if we just open up our minds and our hearts to to tackling this issue. Yeah, and and... And so, with with uh, with rice cultivation and sort of this engineering that that you're you're talking about as a as a as I as I guess an adaptation and, and mitigation strategy, um, how can how how could we basically how how would that work um, in terms of helping us to to learn uh, from the past to to, to be able to adapt to our rising sea levels. Yeah, well, well, you know, the only thing I would say, and, and you're probably familiar with this as well, is that, you know, we had the Dutch Dialogues that came to Charleston, um, and that was a year-long discussion with the Dutch. But, but think about it. When you boil that discussion down that we had with the Dutch, it was all about how do we live with water, right? How do we integrate uh, water management across the entire watershed and how do we leverage green infrastructure and different ways we can leverage green infrastructure, water, land use practices to be more adaptive to live with water. Yep. And one of the things that I, you know, and again, I value that. And I think it's great for us to be able to collaborate with international bodies and, and leaders of thinking about this. But the only thing I would say, just as a proud person from the low country, is that that sort of know-how and knowledge is already here, right? You know, in a lot of ways, we still use a lot of those rice plantations for other things uh, other than just sort of rice production. You know, a lot of, when you think about the Ace Basin, in particular, when you think about, um, when you think about the SE, where the SEDNR uh, Ace Basin location is located, they're using the same rice trunk system, uh, rice trunks and, and rice 
uh, plantation infrastructure to to have different flood levels within the different um, sort of rice areas or rice ponds to and and varying varying those levels to to attract different type of uh, uh, waterfowl or different type of birds that would come in. You know, we have a world a world class birding destination, a world class birding uh, corridor in our region. And so, similarly, when you think about, you know, let's let's just think about how uh, a rice plantation works. That basically they're using canals and they're using the precursor to the dam system, which is the rice trunk, to con- control the flow of water, two-way flow of water. And the key thing there is that this is all surface water management, right? That this is, you know, managing water on the surface of a terrestrial plane, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about what the Dutch, what the Dutch partic- you know, specifically have been known for, they have been known for managing water, what, in the surface terrestrial plane, living with water inside of their urban design, right? And so in many ways, what, what I'm sort of, you know, saying within our current sort of thought framework around rice is that the same way we were able to sort of do terrestrial water management through the system of sort of canals and sort of, um, you know, the rice trunks and sort of having areas where you can have increased area for water storage and for water release, in a lot of ways, those are the similar type of uh, strategies that the Dutch recommended, correct? They they were telling us that we could benefit from surface uh, drainage uh, capacity, right? The ability to hold water uh, in a surface drainage related sort of uh, configuration or structure or system. And then that would aid that our sort of current sort of infrastructure around sewage and drainage, that would aid where it won't sort of uh, overflow our current infrastructure and the sewage and the drainage because at a certain point you don't have a gradient for anything to flow you know flow out of right and a lot of time we have reverse flow so it's really just that same principle how do you create uh, enhanced surface drainage and storage capacity that then allow you to sort of practically manage the flows of water and in this case instead of manage it for rice production I would say that we have an opportunity to manage it as it relates to flood risk reduction. Wow. That that is is pretty incredible and and amazing and and I was um I I'm I'm just kind of blown away that 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 is uh that's just that that's just amazing that 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 strategy could be used and it's something that I never would have thought of in a million years. You know? well, 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 I want you to know, my brother, it's part of your DNA, man, is you as a low country, uh, a low country homie. You, you know, this is part of our culture, man. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> We've been doing it for a while, you know, but but I think people kind of forget about that. And, and you forget about we, we've done it at a large scale. I mean, you talk about I've heard some estimates that said that basically the amount of, of, of land that was removed or modified to build our rice plantation system uh, was more land moved than, than stones that were uh, used to build a great top, you know, the great pyramids of Egypt. And so you talk about, you know, we don't get a lot of hype and a lot of credit for the, the amount of engineering or the great engineering that was done as a part of the rice plantation structure. But you're talking about one of the biggest engineering projects in the history of humankind. You know, when you think about the scale and the amount of land that was modified. That's unreal. It really is. And I, and, and I mean, I just 
I'm loving this because I'm learning so much from you on this call. And, and this is just as it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the more than the great pyramids, I mean, that, that's a, that's no small feat. And if you've ever <laughs> been, if you've ever been to the low country, you know, it's especially not a small feat if you're uh, having to do it in, in pluff mud and yeah. mosquitoes and gnats and everything else. Um, that's incredible. And and I think the only reason why I raise that is sometimes when people think about the current challenges we face, you know, a lot of people can easily get overwhelmed and they can get, you know, to the point where what can we do? Um, only thing I'm trying to do is to remind them as a great part of our cultural heritage and history, we've already kind of done this type of stuff before. Um, and we did it with less technology and with, with less sort of acumen that we have today. And so I just try to remind people that we have that as a part of our culture that if we just remember that and leverage those lessons learned, that was the whole impetus behind the Dutch dialogues. But I want to say, you know, so many cases when I was listening to the Dutch, I'm like, we've been doing that for over 300 years uh, in this part of the world. And we have a rich history in doing what you just described. Yeah. And I, I, that's, uh, that's cool. And it's empowering to know that, you know? Yeah. We, we've done it before. So, so, so Rick, why can't we do it again? <laughs> <laughs> well, Hey, guess what? One way or the other, we're going to be doing it. <laughs> yeah. Man, one way or the other. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome. Well, and so, and, and tell me, tell me about this. Cause you, you, you brought up earlier, which I think, which is one of the things I wanted to talk about too. Um, but being mindful about, you know, building codes and how that affects some of this screen infrastructure and one of the things I saw a, a, a documentary that you were part of, of waiting for hope. Yeah. And is, is this and in, in, in gentrification and, and how that is affecting uh, the Gullah Geechee communities of the low country. And yeah. so what I would say is first there, there's probably going to be a lot of people that have no idea what Gullah Geechee is. So I'd say, can, can you provide some background there? And then yeah. secondly, you know, how, how, how does that, um, as Charleston grows, like many areas of, of, of the country, um, grows and develops, can you, can you just, um, elaborate on, on what you mean by being, uh, mindful about these building codes and how that affects, uh, residents? Yeah, and, and and the land use and the, and the zoning and things of that age. But yep. yeah, first first on on Gullah, you know Gullah Geechee, you know to to all your listeners, that's just shorthand. When you say someone is Gullah Geechee, these are the present day ancestors of the West Africans who came to uh, the United States to, in our case, and in our part of the world, to first uh, support the the rice plantation and then the indigo and then the carton-related uh, agricultural regimes. And so when we say Gullah Geechee, um, it's those people who are the descendants of the West Africans, um, which the Gaston's Wharf, where the aquarium is located, um, it's estimated that you know 40 to 50% of, of, of those people who came from West Africa came right through Gaston's Wharf. So very prominent part of, you know, of all, you know, basically 40-50% of all West Africans who came to the United States came through the Gaston's Wharf in terms of estimates. So, and, and as we discussed earlier, you know, a big part of this region's identity uh, was the Rice Kingdom, which, you know, ran from Georgetown to Savannah, you know, sort of very prominently. But as, you know, you, if you're a fan of history, you know, Charleston was known as sort of the, one of the richest colonies in the world serving as the epicenter for the exportation 
of this product and, and as the commerce center. So, so again, um, you know, Gullah Geechee shorthand for those West African uh, uh, slave descendants who still live in sort of the barrier islands and the coastal uh, watershed areas. And for those who are interested that uh, the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor is a uh, federally uh, sort of recognized corridor that runs basically from Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, all the way down to Jacksonville, and it runs from the coast roughly to about 30 miles inland. So mm. again, that, that gives you sort of, you know, sort of ge- from a geography perspective, but also from a cultural perspective, um, like I said, the West African uh, slave descendants uh, who live in that geography, uh, geographic area are considered the Gullah Geechee people. And in terms of when you think about um, issues around zoning, land use, building codes, and, and how you would frame that within the Gullah Geechee sort of people's um, reality, um, for those who may not be aware, you know, you still have some prominent Gullah Geechee communities like in St. Helena, um, Mitchellville, uh, Ten Mile, Phillips community, um, and, you know, even Princeville, you know, even further up into North Carolina, um, you have, you know, certain footholds of Gullah Geechee, Sapelo Island down in Georgia. And, you know, what I tell people, Rick, all the time is that because a lot of these people who live in these communities still live off the land, you know, they're still farming, they're still fishing, that these are some of the most low density areas that you have in terms of uh, ratio of built structure versus uh, natural balance, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of my points of advocacy that I've been communicating to people is that when you think about something like salt marshes that have that are shown scientifically that they can migrate upland, that as the water rise, they can migrate upland. But the key part of them being able to migrate upland, Rick, is the is having the cleared path or having the land uh, with no obstruction able to sort of make that general that that general or that gentle sort of migration uphill. And the problem is when you have overdevelopment or development right on the marsh or right behind the marsh or a, a, or a street or a highway that runs, you know, that would impede that progress, inevitably you're going to be dooming that particular uh, green infrastructure to not be able to adapt if it has barriers between it and its ability to migrate upland. And so what I tell people a lot of time is that you know, as, as ridiculous as it may sound, but if you protect those people who are protecting the land, right, who are who are literally, you know, still living off the land and who are living in low density in relation to the land, that these are going to be the critical through, you know, through fairs and sort of causeways for nature to be able to adapt to these changes that's coming at it. So I can't emphasize the enough the importance of, of zoning you know, related practices, how we zone land, uh, how we even, you know, I don't even, the sad thing is we're we're not really thinking about um, how salt marshes, which are going to be critical to the future of a lot of things. I don't think we have even in our bellywick how we even zone to make sure they have, you know, the ability to migrate upland. And then when you factor in, you know, building codes and all these other things, uh, for people to still be able to build in certain areas, regardless of the fact that you have flood risk already associated with those areas, why would you want to zone that land and allow people to build on that land when it's a critical area that shouldn't be built in, number one, because of flood-related risk considerations, 
But number two is an area that's going to be critical for the transition of nature. So, so those are sort of the things that sort of encapsulated when, you know, I think about Gullah Geechee and their ties to the land and them being sort of the caretakers of the land and creating that space for nature to um, make adaptations as these changes take shape. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, that's a super interesting point to think about in terms of, you know, the, the, the Gullah Geechee communities that, that are uh, intact today are living this, you know, compared to a, a, a lot of other communities or, or high density areas, a very, like you said, a, a, a low impact and low uh, density lifestyle, really, that as a result of that, as, as, as being connected so closely with the land and still, uh, you know, living off of the land that they're, they're also um, able to, what will be corridors for nature to, to, to do its thing um, in terms of, uh, like you said, like with, with uh, marsh, marshes retreating. And that's just something that, you know, again, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm loving this conversation because these are just things that it's mind blowing to me that that makes all the sense in the world, but I'm, I never thought about it. You know? No, no. I mean, that's that's the down downside of of of. I call myself the crazy green guy. I spend too much time probably thinking about these things. <laughs> but 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 I give you. But but I but but let's drill down a little further. And I give you even like you know one of the things that the South Carolina Aquarium is known for. You know, we're known for our sea turtle care hospital, right? Mm-hmm. And we're known for our work in terms of sea turtle conservation. But when you when you think about right now, what's the largest per capita area when it when you're talking about sea turtle nested in South Carolina and even on the eastern sea seaboard, uh, east you know north of Cape Canaveral, uh, Cape Romaine uh, Refuge and, and in particular uh, Lighthouse Island and and that sort of you know area is, is the largest per capita sea turtle nesting area outside of Cape Canaveral, but it's number one definitely in South Carolina, but I'm talking about a critically important sea turtle nesting habitat uh, in the Cape Remain Refuge area. But the reality is, Rick, that's a prime example of of a potential casualty of this thing called sea level rise. I mean, they're already experiencing incredible erosion principles. They already experience a lot of um, erosion and a lot of um, concern that, you know, the current constitution of the Cape Remain Refuge um, specifically where the sea turtles are nesting is under siege and it's concerned to how long can it hold considering the dynamics we just discussed. But one of the areas that people don't know and may not even be on people's radar, that is the second per capita nesting area in the, in the great state of South Carolina is Hilton Head, right? Hmm. That people may not even know because guess what? Most, most, I mean, you and I know that Hilton Head is not known for being a conservation haven. It's known for being a resort area, right? Right. And when you think about the last area on Hilton Head Island that is that is low density or lower density, because that's changing as we speak, it's the last one of the last Gullah Geechee communities in Mitchellville. And the reality is if if Cape Remain Refuge, let's say theoretically, if Cape Remain Refuge ceased to exist in its current constitution um, due to sea level rise and, and other downward erosion erosion principles that the reality would be, whether Hilton Head Island know it or not, they would become the top most important ecological habitat for sea turtle nesting in the state of South Carolina. 
Now, the sad truth of it is because it's not known as being an ecological hub, are, are people in on that island thinking about, as you think about future plans, how do you make room for both uh, humans and nature to coexist? And the sad truth of it is the last remaining bastion of area that could be high potential for that, for, for that sort of, um, those coexisting principles is in the Mitchellville area, which is a historic Gullah Geechee community. But unfortunately, as we speak, it's being, um, it's being um, decimated by um, development. It's being encroached upon um, by a lot of people who want to develop this area and um, in a lot of ways displacing um, the people who have lived there the longest. So this is, a, to me, is, you, know, you could have the green infrastructure example, but this is also an example of critical habitat for endangered uh, sea turtles that are going to be at stake if we don't protect those people and we don't protect those uh, those nature ways that these people kind of serve as the caretakers of. Well, and 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 I think to, so. I, yeah, I, I you know I, I agree 110 percent with you, and 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 it also kind of makes me think about you know in terms of preserving cultures and and it, it makes me think that you know if you don't put some level of of boundary on some of this stuff you know you're you're going to be in a situation where you've lost the culture and you don't know whether you're standing in a in a shopping mall parking lot in Alaska or South Carolina because everything's going to look the exact same and everything's going to have the same exact problems. And, and I know that's a, a little bit of a stretch from, from what we're talking about, but it's just one of the things that I, that I always think about is, is I watch, and I'm not anti-development, but you, you, you do have to protect areas and cultures and people and, and, and wildlife so that they have the opportunity to, to thrive. And, 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 and not doing that is, is doing a disservice to, to everyone. Yeah, and 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 not to get on my you know my southern sensibility sort of uh, you know soapbox, but you know the thing I take pride about our southern culture is that we respect and we love all components of our culture, and it's not respective of how much money a person has or don't have. You know, it's it's really predicated on we embrace what is here. You know, what has been here, and 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 I totally agree with you, Rick. That. You know, my concern is what makes us special, what makes us different is why a lot of people want to move here, why a lot of people want to sort of come here. But if we don't protect and preserve those elements that make us who we are and that sort of serve as sort of our sort of positioning in the world as an important place for a lot of different reasons, you're right. I think we not only run the risk of losing terrestrial, you know, related land, but God, you know, God forbid, if we lose our cultural heritage and identity, you know, what really will stick out or what can we sort of pass on to future generations if we allow that to occur? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't, could not agree more. Um, well, Albert, let, let's, let, let's shift gears just for a second, because I, I do want to, I want to, because I think this is all uh, inter interconnected, but at the South Carolina Aquarium, um, can you talk a little bit more about some of your conservation initiatives and, and, and how they relate to some of these issues that we're talking about, whether it be climate change, you know, adaptation, um, all, all the things that we're talking about? 
Yeah, well, well, you know, the, the key thing about, as I mentioned before, about the Resilience Initiative for Coastal Education or RICE is, is really how do we engage all people, not just the elite scientific and policy people, not just the city planners, but all people, um, rural, urban, um, in this discourse around how do we sort of uh, understand what does this mean for us? You know, not just from the 30,000 foot level, but I'm talking about what does it mean for my community? What does it mean for my family? You know, how do we put this in, in those type of terms? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the key thing that we wanted to do, Rick, is to, is to take this, this conversation out of the, the ether and, and bring it down to the community level and bring it down to the individual level. Because at the end of the day, that's where it needs to be. That's how you're going to really uh, be able to inform decision-making where people are going to hopefully make the right decisions to keep themselves and their family and their community safe. And so the front-end piece of this has been built around uh, education and outreach. Um, we've had some great partners that we partner with in terms of being able to do the outreach to communities, including the Medical University of South Carolina Public Information Community Outreach, including South Carolina Education TV, Allen University. But we've also, in addition to the outreach component, one of the key things that I've been an advocate for is that we all in this together, meaning that, you know, gone are the days, Rick, where one person can, can collect enough data where you can have all the data that you need to sort of get at the, the multiplicity effect is affecting this corridor. And so one of the things we did as a extension of just the community education outreach, we also developed a, a suite of tools that would um, allow the everyday citizen first to understand what would six feet or seven feet or eight feet of sea level rise mean for them and their community. And so we created a sea rise viewer and that work was actually done in collaboration with Rock Technologies. But, but in addition to educating them about what would six feet of sea level rise or six feet of storm surge would look like, we also wanted to be able to partner with these communities because guess what? These people who live there every day are best positioned to actually understand those changes that's impacted these communities at a very hyper-local level. And so in addition to creating the Sea Level Rise Viewer, we also created the Sea Rise uh, Citizen Science Project, which allows you know, ev- everyday citizens to capture and to uh, chronicle and to be able to provide those sort of fundamental inputs that can inform uh, just, you know, science decision-making, policy decision-making. And just one quick example I'll give of this is, is that in the, you know, West Ashley, Maryville community, uh, that community, specifically Mr. John Carr, was noticing a huge marsh die-off in that community. And as a result of just being able to engage him uh, and him taking these observations, we've been able to engage some of the best uh, salt marsh, benthic, and sort of... Uh, plant-based scientists in the country to, as well as with South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, to come up with a risk mitigation strategy around how do we mitigate this risk of this die-off, this large-scale die-off going on. So, so, so basically, we've been trying to educate, inform, but also we've been trying to empower these communities through a suite of tools that would allow them to be a part of the identification of issues, but also how do we, once we identify the issues, how do we come up with sort of solutions to mitigate these issues. Well, I, I love that. And, and I love that, you know, when you get the, uh, the, the community involved, like you're doing, 
that's when you have the opportunities to to actually learn from someone who knows the land, right? Yeah. And it sounds like that's what happened with with Mr. Carr, you know, and and someone going, you know, when I I, I don't know what the the story was, but you know, it would be like you know me growing up in Savannah. There's certain areas that I know like the back of my hand, and I can tell you where things have changed. You you better believe it. And and that and it, just to get a little deep in that story, and it's a beautiful story because basically. Um, I, I basically went out to the community, um, and, and this is just for those of you who listen in the radio land, this area is the same area that is uh, that is home to Charlestown Landing, which is the founding place of Charleston, right? So this is the same area of Marsh that is home to Charlestown Landing, is home to uh, what used to be called Maryville, which was the first African-American township in South Carolina. So this is this is in my book a Stradivarian, you know, salt marsh. You know, if this salt marsh could talk, right? Right. right. Talk, you know, this you know, this this salt marsh literally is there at the founding of, of the of the city of Charleston, right? Um at Charlestown Landing. But the, the heartwarming piece of that story, Rick, is when I went out there and I saw the, the die-off and I said, Well, Mr. Carr, do you have a picture of the marsh when the marsh was healthy? And he said, as a matter of fact, I do have a picture of, of, of my father on his 80th birthday, swinging in the swing, looking out with that same point of view. And it was actually from him sharing that picture with me, Rick, of his father on, the, on his 80th birthday, swinging in the swing, that I had a picture of the last time this marsh was, was healthy, you know, at, the full, at its full extent, and basically putting the picture of that 20-year-ago photo with the current day sort of degradation pluff mud photo, I sent this information to Dr. James T. Morris, who's arguably one of the top sort of um, marsh salt marsh ecologists in the world, expecting it maybe a month or two before I hear back from him. I sent these two juxtapositions to him, and within nine minutes he responded, and the next week he was here on the ground with his waders on, because once he saw the difference, he said he had to come see it for himself. You're kidding, that's incredible. Yeah. That's a, that's a great story. And I'm, I'm so, so, all right. So this, uh, remind me of the, the doctor's name again, or the, the, the scientist. Yeah. yeah. Dr. James T. Morris. He's, he's based out of Columbia. He's at the Baruch, uh, Institute there, but he is a, a distinguished professor and he's one of the top salt marsh ecologists in the world. And so, I literally sent him a picture of the current present day picture um, that we uploaded into our C-Rise Citizen Science Project, uh, along with the picture from 20 years ago with Mr. John Carr's father in the swing. And the difference was so stark until he responded in nine minutes. And that following week, he was down here with his PhD student taking site-specific LIDAR analysis. (laughs) That's unreal. I just, that's incredible. That's awesome. Love it. Um, so, so, and so what, what, what is the, what, what happens with that? So you, there, is there like, um, I, I don't know, what, what, what do they do with that information? How, how do they replenish the, the marsh? Well, well, Rick, this is, this is, a, this is a great story and a great win. And this is one of those stories that I get, a lot of energy from. So I apologize for the people in radio world for, for me being so energetic. But, <laughs> Don't but, ever uh, apologize for that. Yeah, I love, but, I love it. But the long story short is, is that once Dr. James T. Morris came down and provided the site-specific LIDAR data, 
That data was then shared with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, and in particular, Michael Hodges from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources run their SCORE program, which is their uh, oyster reef and salt marsh restoration initiative. As a result of, of sharing that LIDAR data, Michael Hodges came out, wanted to come for a site visit as well. After his site visit, we deduced the strategy to, to plant some different strands of marshes that may be more adaptive to the current conditions that could thrive more um, with the shifting landscape that's currently occurring in that area. So two years ago, we planted those strands and we were able to codify that data, capture that data, follow that data for a year to see which of those strands would be most, um, most sort of acceptable or most sort of adaptive to the current conditions. Uh, while that was going on, um, we, SEDNR, asked us to support a, uh, a grant that they were submitting for a larger scale restoration initiative and they wanted to include the site, that site, as a part of that SEDNR proposal for restoration funding. We actually received, our SEDNR received that funding. And as a result, um, we're going to be able to plant um, in partnership with, with South Carolina Department of Natural Resources uh, and the SCORE program, we're going to be able to plant over half an acre of salt marsh in that community. And wow. so, so, you know, the cool thing that I tell people and the exciting thing that I get excited about is, you may say, well, what's the power, you know, because it, it, let's bring it full circle, because, you know, I was saying how people feel powerless and some people don't feel like there's nothing they can do. But think about it. By Mr. John Carr taking one photograph or sort of raising the flag or the red flag that something was going on that needed to be sort of someone need to pay attention to it. As a result of that, not only did he get top scientists involved who want to now do the research and analysis to understand what's going on at a deeper level. We also have been able to mobilize resources to proactively mitigate um, this die-off situation. And as we discussed earlier, green infrastructure is absolutely critical for flood risk mitigation. So the ability for one person to make a difference, I just want to posit this with all of your, your listeners to say, if you ever doubt that one person can make a difference, this is, to me, a great example of one person making a difference that's going to impact this community in his lifetime and beyond his lifetime. I think we people need hope, Rick, you know, yeah. and, and you know, one of the things I try to do, uh, I've been trying to do is to model what I call to demonstrate and to model the type of behaviors that's needed that can get at the things we need to do at a larger scale, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things I've been advocate for is before, you know, we can sort of ask people to buy into something, you got to give them something to buy into, you know, you got to give them something that they can sort of rally around. And so it's just my hope that in our humble way that if we can provide these like small wins or examples of, of wins, that we can get more people in the game and we can work collab in a collaborative fashion across the entire landscape of low country to, to do this over and over again. So I agree, Rick. It's, I think that's a great place to, to end it and, and have people know that, you know, you can make a difference, you know, just by making an observation, you can make a difference. Thanks for tuning in to The Sustainable Angler, and special thanks to Albert George for joining me today on the podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes of The Sustainable Angler, they can be found anywhere you listen to your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud. And if you like what you're hearing, uh, it'd be great if you could give us a like or leave a rating and review. Thanks.